When we think of British history, what is it that we think of? We may be inclined to think of the monarchy, the military, or even of notable artists and writers who have emerged from the United Kingdom over many centuries. Our insights into the key events and social practices of the past are so often grounded in seminal literature of the period and the historical writings of the lives of influential figures in positions of authority. But when history is recorded, who decides what is preserved and what is disregarded? If you think of British history, you're likely not thinking about 18th century gay clubs, pioneering sexological research, or kings so enamoured with their male lovers that they gift them the entire county of Cornwall. But why shouldn't you be? In the first of several episodes exploring LGBTQ culture in the United Kingdom, join us as we ask the question, what's queer about the history of Great Britain's sex life? Welcome to episode 11 of Slash Queer. You're here with me, your host, Georgie Williams. All those who record history record it from a standpoint. Way back in episode 1, we talked a little bit about the concept of positionality and how all researchers or content producers are a lens through which ideas are perceived, analysed and then shared with others. History is no different. When it comes to human bias, there can be no objectivity in how a historian records history. Details are either knowingly omitted to generate a particular narrative, or unknowingly overlooked when an individual's personal experiences and perspectives shape what they do or do not recognise as history which warrants recording. Be it through intentional or unintentional omissions, British history has been subject to the same formulation of narrative, arguably for the sake of defining what Britishness is through the records we keep. The concept of tradition is a powerful one, shaping our beliefs about social norms and feeding into our ideas about nationalism too. And British nationalism, as controversial a subject as it may be, is still a driving force which is often either embraced by more conservative types or vehemently rejected by progressives. So what has been omitted for the sake of preserving an idea of Britishness and British values? Like other countries we have covered in this podcast, there is undoubtedly a hidden LGBTQ history. But the question is, how extensive is this history? And what queer events and practices have been left out of the history books? For this episode, we are lucky enough to be consulting with an expert whose online project, Whores of Yore, has been providing insight into the language, literature, objects, and social practices related to sex and sexuality to over 400,000 followers on Twitter alone. The brains behind this project, Dr. Kate Lister, is a lecturer in literature and history at Leeds Trinity University. She is the author of A Curious History of Sex and the curator of Whores of Yore. She is blocked by Piers Morgan on Twitter and won the Sexual Freedom Award for Publicist of the Year in 2017. When I told Kate I wanted to produce an episode taking apart the heteronormative and cisnormative assumptions surrounding British history, she was more than happy to take me to school on the subject. Fab, so the first question I wanted to ask was, what misconceptions are there about Britain's sexual history? Oh, um, do you know, I think I'm, I'm going to launch straight in there with a, the misconception is that we don't have a sex history. 
I think that's something that the Brits, we're still not quite comfortable with it. And the idea that that we're very repressed, sexually repressed, and that that we haven't enjoyed sex. We still struggle with it today. We, we still struggle to get past the kind of like, you know, smutty tittering and like, ooh, matron part of it. <laughs> but like the idea, it, like the, the Victorians didn't have sex. That, I mean, if you kind of think about it logically, it doesn't make any sense because of course people are having sex because we're here. Of course, they're having <laughs> sex. I suppose what I mean is like they weren't having kinky sex, fun sex, mm. sex that they laughed about or sex that they enjoyed or we kind of do think of it very much as lie back, think of England, you know, do, you, do your duty type of thing. The idea that people in the 19th century were just as into spanking and water sports and just general filth mm. is, yeah, we, for some reason that always surprises people. And I think it's, it's, it's not only that we're not good at recognising that in ourselves, but we tend to think of history is a very serious, it's a very serious subject with a lot of gravitas. And when we're talking about, I've picked on the Victorians, we tend to think of like, you know, like these big heavyweights, Queen Victoria, Gladstone, Disraeli. We don't tend to think that they all had sex lives and that everyone else in Victorian England was shagging like rabbits as well. So we approach the past and our own past with this sort of, I don't know, I don't know if we'd ever fully articulate it because it sounds ridiculous, but people are constantly surprised by the fact that they were having Filthy, kinky, naughty sex. Always have done. Always. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so that leads on really well to my second question, which is, um, to what extent is there a queer element to the sexual history of the UK? Absolutely, it's been there. That That's another thing. I mean, usually it's just your right-wing maniacs who, who like to say that gay people have just been invented or that they weren't around or that, I don't know they've been produced in a factory somewhere by by Stalin or something like there's some kind of leftist conspiracy <laughs> nobody said that I don't think that's just just me being silly um but shiny it, little communist gay yeah that it's it's a communist plot to, to overthrow the monarchy or something I don't know <laughs> but, like, but yeah the idea that being gay or queer is a new thing that you hear that quite a lot it's complete nonsense is of course same-sex interest relation kind of playing around with gender fluidity have been with us since absolute day dot as have sex because we're human beings and that is a central part of what we are who we do that's our makeup what has changed what is new and this is what makes studying the subject from a historical point of view kind of tricky but interesting at the same time is the language that is used to describe it changes vastly so if you had spoken to somebody from I don't know, say the 18th century and if you'd asked if they were gender fluid they would have just looked at you completely blankly they would have just just I, I, I do not know what the fuck you're talking about so it's identifying how they would have understood themselves can be very very tricky so to say does it have a queer history you'd have to first of all define what you mean by that and then look backwards because and that is that's what makes it so difficult to research is trying to identify how they understood that sexuality and gender themselves but it's absolutely always been with us in one form or another it's difficult to tease out sometimes it's a hidden history it's buried and of course as soon as people start being persecuted for same-sex relations or for playing around with gender roles it becomes even more secretive and uh, it's very di- and finding the records is tricky too because you don't generally have first-hand accounts of this like a completely you know like Anne Lister's diaries yeah so like that has been described as like the Dead Sea Scrolls of lesbian history and they absolutely are because to have it in her voice in her own voice 
just completely unmediated by anything is so rare because most of the the records that we have are people who found themselves in court or people that are facing some kind of persecution or you might find it referenced there's a lot of lesbianism in pornography always has been but that's not exactly a reliable with any more than Pornhub is a reliable account of what plumbers do when they come over do you know what I mean <laughs> <laughs> so you've got to be careful with it but it's um, Absolutely. Like queer history is just part of who we are. Trying to deny it or pretend it's not there is just really, it's really silly. It does everyone a great disservice. (laughs) (laughs) So that was such a fantastic response. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Um, So obviously my question is, my question is, do you have any notable stories or case studies regarding queer sexual culture from British history? But obviously queer is like you mentioned, it's subjective temporally, it's subjective Mm. culturally. I think in this regard, it's just British sexual history that isn't what we would believe it to be, kind of uh, cisgender, heterosexual, uh, for the sake of reproduction and marriage and nothing else. Yeah, like I said, it's all throughout us. I mean, Hadrian, who built Hadrian's Wall, he is described as exclusively having sex with with boys and men. He was, yep, he was he was all about the gay. Although he wouldn't have understood it in those terms, obviously, because he was Roman and they had a very different. I suppose what what's really different now is that we understand sexuality as being almost like an identity. Like you come out, don't you, and you say, "I am gay, I am bi, I am queer, I am I am none of those things, I am unlabelable, or whatever it is." But in Roman and Greek society, it wasn't a case of it, you were gay. It was, you just had sex with men. Do you know I mean it was like it wasn't an identity? It was an action. It's something that they did. So he wouldn't have understood it like that. There'd have been no big coming out party for Hadrian. He just loved having sex with other men. Um, but it's the kind of records like that you find all the way through. Oh, um, yeah, it, it happens in royalty more than you'd, <laughs> you'd like to think. So uh, Edward II, have you seen Braveheart? Mm, yeah. Yeah, so you know the sort of weakling son and his mate that gets shoved out of a window? Yeah, so that's not exactly based in history, but that's Edward II, and he was definitely, although we don't have any definitive accounts of it, he was so close to his personal advisor, who was called Piers Gaveston, that he was known as being the second king. And they, was, they were described as being married and as being like intensely in love with each other. It got so bad that eventually the nobles forced Edward to exile him and then he, he had him back and all the rest of it. But eventually Gaveston was executed because they couldn't be doing with this. Yeah, because he, he gained so much power because Edward made him like Duke of Cornwall and everything. Because if you're king, you know, and you've got some good dick, yeah, you would, wouldn't you? You'd just be, you'd just be like, have Cornwall. <laughs> if I could I'd be like yeah it's yours if if, if you're getting laid properly you would just and you were the king you'd just be like yeah have Cornwall this it's been amazing (laughs) so obviously that didn't go down very well at all with the nobles (laughs) or his wife who was um yeah Isabel from France that her family were furious about it at their wedding at the wedding of Edward and Isabel Gaveston turned up and like flounced around in a big purple robe which doesn't sound but like purple was reserved for royalty so what he did was like the faux pas of like turning up to your ex or your current lover's wedding and wearing a better wedding dress than the bride that's like the equivalent of what he did yeah right so and then so they got rid of Gaveston then he found another quote-unquote favorite is what they refer to it as and favorite Hugh Dispenser who again, he hadn't learned his lesson the first time. So again, he was showering him with like incredible 
well, land, basically. The nobles got really pissed off. And then eventually his wife dispossessed him and put him in jail. And the story about Edward is that he was killed eventually with a red-hot poker up the ass. That's the, yeah. And, and the thing that I'll say is interesting about that is there is no evidence really that actually happened and most historians do not accept that that is true but what that is is a kind of a leftover of the general homophobia and the uh, sort of slur on his character about that that of course he would have been executed with a poker up the ass because he was gay and because yeah so he was absolutely big big gay royal definitely the moral of the story is don't give cornwall to your to your lovers <laughs> you know what i'm gonna try my best to not do that it's just a bad idea really it's a, it's a struggle but i'm gonna take that <laughs> advice to heart <laughs> no, but that is so insightful because i think you know when people think of, of kind of british history as well they do often think of the royals and there yeah. is this evidently had a sanitization of the royals oh, yeah. in, in every regard yeah and uh, james the first as well so that was um mary queen of scots son who eventually took the throne he was at the very least bisexual he had, he had a lot of male lovers and when i forget exactly which country hall it's in northamptonshire and it was uh, it was where he used to live um and when they renovated it and sort of did restoration back in 2004 they found a secret corridor that went from James's bedroom to what would have been his um his his male lovers <laughs> so it was yeah so he was definitely I mean you know he had kids and everything he seemed to love his wife but he was very at very least bisexual and it was known enough for him to have had secret corridors built to access their bedrooms so wow yeah wow and I think also it's interesting because I think there's then a question of class that comes into place as well is who could get away with this yeah. with the right kind of money and you know having the benefit of being able to give away Cornwall, Cornwall really helps I think whereas perhaps it was easier to demonize people from a, a less affluent background for these kinds of things yeah I mean it was um so it's Henry VIII that passed the first laws against sodomy that make it a capital offense and when they said sodomy it doesn't necessarily mean what we mean now it kind of meant any sexual act that didn't make a baby basically so they also threw in bestiality but interestingly it's always been um, male same-sex sex that's caused all the the fuss um lesbianism really barely gets a look in with this stuff it's always about the men on men that people get very upset about mm. so yeah and then from then there were a number of noblemen who were executed for sodomy but all throughout history statistically it has been the poorer people people who can't defend themselves people who are easy targets of course it has yeah it's harder to take you know we see that today with Weinstein don't we it's harder to take down people with power and money and influence even if they're doing things that we socially have deemed is is wrong I mean Weinstein really was but you, you get my point is that people are protected by money and power always have yeah, absolutely but it's also I guess I guess the history of royals will have been recorded a little bit more than than the common person as well so maybe yeah all those lives and stories lost that we don't know about and like there's a whole culture that we just it's there we know it's there we just can't quite see it through the historical records because it was so secretive in the 18th century there was a number of raids 
the weird thing about homophobia is it seems to come in like waves and lashes. Like there are kind of like spikes of um, like really vicious oppression and then it kind of dissipates again to a sort of a tolerance almost. But in the 18th century, there was one of those. There was a real wave of repression in London in particular. And there were a number, they were called Molly Houses, which were raided. Now, Molly House is not technically a male brothel, but selling sex definitely went on there. It was more like a meeting house where they would go and have sex with one another, pretty much. So I don't know, maybe like a gay club is probably the closest that you're going to get to that. So there were a number of raids on these clubs by the so-called moral police of London who sort of formed to try and well instill everybody being really moral and um, a number of men were dragged out and arrested and executed as a result of that but it's their testimonies really that give us the insight into that history and it's really sad that it had to be mediated through persecution and their ultimate execution but that's the kind of records that we've got where you can start to see how gay subcultures or you know queer subcultures existed and we know there'll have been so much more we just can't get to it you know yeah of course of course and I think um there is that pervasive kind of issue with the erasure of queer history um Mm. and obviously we see it in so many other countries especially colonized countries but it is it's still a problem here as well and I think often about what happened in Germany during um, you know Nazi era Germany with the book burnings at the Sex Research Institute, yeah. um, and obviously that was an extreme, but there was very much there was that kind of sanitization of uh, kind of European culture that happened yep. in the kind of eighteenth, nineteenth, kind of twentieth century. And just before like the Nazis took hold, that's kind of like another example of, a, of severe backlash and persecution that, that comes about periodically. It's because before that, in Berlin and in Paris in particular, there was an absolutely thriving gay and lesbian scene. Like it wasn't even particularly a subculture. It was very much culture. It was very much out there. People uh, laughed about Paris, referred to it as Lesbos Paris. And, you know, there were very, like, prominent clubs and, and there was a kind of clique of very, very wealthy women who were unashamed in their lesbianism, who settled in Paris. Dolly Wilde, for example, Oscar Wilde's niece that a lot of people haven't heard about. She was the only one to carry his name forward. But she settled in Paris and lived very openly as a lesbian. And so did a whole host of other very... And it became almost chic in Paris. Like, you know, it was almost like, well, these wealthy, very influential women are being gay, so I am gay now too. It was like almost like it became fashionable to, to do it. It sounds mad, but it's true. Whereas in Britain, we weren't very tolerant like that. At the same time, there were these really prominent lesbian clubs in Paris, like Le Monocle was one of them, because they'd, they'd all go in wearing tuxedos and monocles. And uh, other Paris salons that were really... The, the focus on lesbian literature. But at the same time, Britain, in 1921, we tried to introduce an amendment to the uh, criminal act that had been the one that had persecuted Oscar Wilde to basically include women in that, to include females having sex with, with other females, sound like a right-wing twit, female women, women having sex with other women. And it was actually, they debated it. You can see the whole debate, it's recorded on online in the Houses of Commons, but they debated it at length and spoke about how horrendous it was that some women were having sex with other women. It was described as disgusting and polluting and all the rest of it. But they didn't pass the act because they thought that other women might read it and it would give them ideas. <laughs> which I love. That's such a British thing, isn't it? They were all just like, right, so this definitely happens. It's disgusting, but we can't, we can't make this a law because it'll just encourage other women. They'll just, they'll get ideas. 
So, so when I was talking about the, the, the burning of the, the books at the Institute for Sexual Wissenschaft, you know, and implying that, you know, we kind of all lost these histories, what it seems to be is that actually Britain was maybe not cool enough to have something to lose in that regard. Oh, I don't want to do us down, but we weren't a Paris. We weren't a Berlin. Because, you know, like in Berlin, before the Nazis took hold, there really was this vibrant cabaret world. And research is there with an absolute forefront of transgender research. It was all burnt and lost. And in Britain, we just, we weren't quite there. I mean, we did our, like, so Radcliffe Hall, she published the book Well of Loneliness in 1928, I think. And it's definitely a landmark book in lesbian literature and queer literature because it, it focuses, if you've not read it, it focuses on the story of a woman called Stephen who basically comes to terms with the fact that she is what is described in the book as a sexual invert, which was terminology at the time meaning like gay or lesbian. It's kind of clumsy, but it, that, it was the first attempt to try and understand lesbianism and homosexuality within scientific terms instead of just moral condemnation so it's a book that's all about that and it's not a raunchy pornographic book my god not at all there is so little sex in it but the fact alone that it was about a woman who very much identifies as masculine and wants to wear male clothes and have sex be with other women that was enough and there was a censorship trial about it and there was a newspaper campaign against it saying that I forget the name of the journalist but he wrote this article about it saying that he would rather give a healthy boy or girl a vial of prussic acid to drink than give them this book so it was you know so on one hand it was great because we had Radcliffe Hall writing it but yeah we clearly weren't ready for that were we was this around the same period of Edward Carpenter's writing? Because I know yeah. that he used the phrase invert in invert. his writing. Which that, is... It comes from Havelock Ellis, who was one of, a pioneering sexologist, one of the first to, so at like the end of the 19th century, scientists start researching sexuality, as in like trying to really understand it. And, you know, a lot of their conclusions have been obviously vastly revised today. But this idea of sexual inversion became really prominent at the time because it was the first one to say people who feel like this aren't freaks it's natural it's normal lots of people feel like this the they called it inversion because they conceived of it as being like it's an inversion of cis gender I suppose but they didn't use those words so it's clunky and it's clumsy by today's terms but it was genuinely the first attempt to understand it and once that kind of research got going as well that definitely fed into sort of a vibrant community and culture you know in Berlin and Paris and maybe a bit in Britain as well because we had the Bloomsbury set you know your Virginia Wolf and your people like that and they were all gay for each other definitely <laughs> that's not written in a journal article anywhere not in those terms but if you want to explore their sexuality and their relationships it's very much all kind of gender fluid and yeah free for all so I think we did have our own little vibe we just weren't as, no we weren't as cool as Paris I can't pretend we were no in fact lots of really prominent uh, lesbian and gay people left Britain to go to Paris and hang out there because it was just definitely much cooler <laughs> well that actually it, it brings up another question for me actually where we were talking about inverts do you think that to a certain extent maybe there's misconceptions about the kind of cultural perceptions of what we would now call queerness looking back at some of, of the writing around it because people presume that the language is being used in a derogatory tone, that mm. actually these early, don't even want to describe it as atavistic, but kind of, of 
those first attempts to articulate mm. queerness because it's language we wouldn't use now yeah. you may read that and automatically presume that it was it was meant with any kind of vitriol or or disapproval well, I mean- People did get hold of it and use it with with vitriol. Uh, the obscenity trial for Well of Loneliness. If you look that up, you'll see it being used by that. But I think that no, it wasn't intended to be used like that at all. And the reason that Radcliffe Hall wrote that book and she talks about inversion and there's a foreword by Havelock Ellis is because that was so important to her. Was finding that book for the first time and reading his research was like this. I mean, imagine that. Imagine like that you are so consumed with this that you don't feel akin to, to the, the gender that you're, that you're being foisted upon, that you don't fancy the right sex, and that this is absolutely such a struggle within you. And you live in a world where it doesn't really have the language or anything to be able to articulate that or, or facilitate that. And then suddenly you find a book by a guy called Havelock Ellis who explains you and your feelings, and there are other people like you and he calls them inverts. So, you know, it wouldn't have been offensive at the time. It would have been an absolute revelation, a revelation at the time, you know, and it offered so much. It was so important to so many people and threatening to other people as well, because it seemed to offer some kind of scientific legitimacy where it's far easier to just say, these people are evil, you know? So it's, uh, no, I don't, it was not derogatory at all. In fact, it was really for the time enlightening pioneering important and yeah obviously we can look back and say the idea that you know that you are inverted somehow is is clumsy and shit because it suggests a state of not being inverted that you've got something wrong doesn't it like you know that you you were normal and now you're not that's kind of what it suggests but at the time that was just it was revelatory it was amazing it's so important in in queer history to have that language yeah and i think also there's kind of, for all of my perspectives on Butler, there is, when when she wrote about these kinds of Althusserian ideas of interpolation and being hailed by somebody, you know, mm. walking down the street and having a police officer say, you there, and mm. you can only defend yourself if you identify yourself as the you being hailed, yeah. right? That you can only, as a queer person, unless you have the language to identify yourself and articulate your experience. How do you fight for your visibility, your representation, your protection through legislation? Um, How do you even understand yourself? If if you don't have the vocabulary to be able to understand yourself or that language, is, is it so... Yeah, like, how do you do that? How do you... Which is why it's so... The tricky thing about, you know, queer history is exactly that, is it's very, you know, you can find examples all throughout history of people that today, right now, if they existed, we would almost certainly go, well, that's a transgender woman, or that's a transgender man. But at the time, they did not have access to that language. They didn't, and they didn't have access to the concept either, that you could be transgender. They didn't. They understood themselves. They understood that they identified with another gender. But that's what makes it so tricky, is and it always causes contention. Like if you call somebody from history a trans woman, there will be somebody that says that they were a butch lesbian. And it's the person isn't there anymore to be able to articulate it for themselves. And more than that, at the time, they didn't have that language to do it. So trying to tease out what they thought of themselves, how they understood and conceptualized their own sexuality is so tricky. Because like, are we putting modern labels 
on it, what would they be today? It's very, very tricky to be able to do that, which is why when Havelock Ellis starts writing his stuff and giving names, it's an, and so like it's a revelation, absolutely, because yeah. people can start to understand themselves in a different way. That leads on so perfectly to my last question, actually. Let's um, do it. <laughs> that, yeah, perfectly. Uh, how do you think that the UK's sexual history or lack of knowledge of it? shapes our contemporary approach to sex and sexuality as a society? I think that the really powerful thing about history is um, is when it's used for context and it's used for continuity is it's not dead. It's not, you, the people you're talking about might be long gone, but the narrative and the legacy is absolutely alive and vibrant and really, really important today because it frames context, it frames debate, it tells us why we've got to where we are. And when you look back through history and you realise that at different points, attitudes to sexuality and gender have been vastly different to how we conceptualise it today. For example, <clears throat> in Native American culture, the idea of a third spirit person with with their gender there's many different uh, names for this according to the various tribes but they had an understanding of gender very very differently to anything in the west and that they conceived of there was a third gender when somebody didn't align with the gender that they were assigned with at birth and they were absolutely fine with that there were some tribes as well i can't remember the name of it but they didn't even give their child a gender till they were about four or five and they decided so when you look at things and i'm not saying that you know that it's brilliant we should all do that but when you look at that you have to realize that our attitudes to gender are not as true and as fixed as we might think that they are because other people have experienced it and done it very very differently all throughout history For clarity, what Kate is talking about in Native American culture is two-spirit individuals. A rather imperfect equivalent in British culture would be a bi-gender, bisexual individual. Only Native Americans can identify as two-spirit. And traditionally, some of these Native American gender identities were determined in part by occupational skill instead of biology. Yeah, yeah, and I think... I think to a certain extent, British culture, as somebody who, who's grown up here, there's this problem with us having this idea of us being the default. And I think to a certain extent, that's, it comes into our kind of colonial history, yes. that we are representative of the norm, that there is something objective and true about British values, um, yes. which is absolutely not the case. Our perceptions of gender and sexuality are also subjective and biased and yep based on very arbitrary notions about what they should be. I often talk about a community in Papua New Guinea who their gender stereotypes were that men were very lively and energetic and women were very sluggish and their bodies were naturally heavy. And that's obviously why these women always sat on the floor, right? And for better or worse, I want to say worse, uh, Christian missionaries, contacted this community I know. Mm. Um, and they introduced them to gospel music and within a few generations those stereotypes of men being the energetic ones and, and women being heavy and sluggish were lost because women were encouraged to engage in gospel music right yeah. and I, I often have to say to people our ideas of what gender is in the UK are just as subjective and and subject to change yeah. and Outside influences can absolutely change how we perceive gender identity and how it's presented. And that doesn't mean that it's not 
valid, it mm. means that it's supposed to be something that is non-static and adapts and should be inclusive as yeah. well. Just because gender is a social construct doesn't mean gender doesn't exist. It just means that we get to construct it, you know? Yes. And that's not always yeah. an active thing. That can also be unconscious. That's that's engagement with other communities. That's a political climate. It's, mm. it's, it's an amalgamation of all of these other factors. But there is nothing true and right and correct or even exemplary about how British people navigate gender and sexuality. No, no. It becomes our truth and we understand it as a truth, but it's not. Is It's the product of a lot of social conditioning. It's the product of what we think of as history mm. as well. You know, it's difficult to sort of conceive of, I know a lot of people struggle with it, the idea of, you know, gender, thick, queer, transgender people, like they're the, the new somehow. And I know that that you know that you, you sort of encounter that and hear about it, but again, it's because the history that we've got hasn't just hasn't included them. They were there; they've always been there. But when you've got a history syllabus and a, well, the history that you're taught is primarily that of heterosexual wealthy white people, is you do tend to exclude. We well, don't tend to. You do exclude minority people, marginalised people. And so we can fall into the trap of thinking that they were never there at all, which isn't true. Uh, just because the only ones that we're looking at is, you know, Queen Victoria and uh, all the rest of them, is it's not a very good representation of transgender women throughout history, is it? You know, so, as, but far it's as, there. Know. as far, far as, as we know, as far as we know, as far as we know, I wouldn't be surprised though. She was a kinky minky, was Vicky. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, it's all this recovered history that we've got to try and get back to and like, you know, stop projecting our own values onto history and expecting it to conform to the way that we think that it was. Not at all. So it's there. It's always been with us. And we've now got to do, we've now got to diligently unearth it and piece it back together instead of just ignoring it because it's mildly inconvenient. Well, I'm very bloody glad you're doing that, Kate. Yeah. Um, thank you so very much. For this. It was my this pleasure. Thank you. Delightful. As an amendment to this interview, I would like to add that since recording this, I have learned that Judith Butler now uses they them pronouns and has come out as non-binary. So my apologies for the use of she her pronouns in the original interview. Having grown up in the United Kingdom and traversed the mainstream education system in this country, I knew next to nothing of what Kate shared in our conversation. I can't help but wonder how it would have felt, as a newly out adolescent, to have been learning about queer historical figures during my history classes. I wonder how it would have shaped my teacher's approaches to supporting queer students, too. All those who record history record it from a standpoint. That is undeniable. But where there are gaps, omissions, stories overlooked and deemed unfit for the chosen narrative, there will always be those looking to preserve and uphold those histories. We all have a standpoint, and for some of us, our particular standpoint generates our interest in seeing all histories and experiences preserved, particularly those which have been stigmatised in the past. There is comfort, there is reassurance, there is even hope to be found in being given irrefutable proof of the truth, that we existed, we aren't the first to be carving this path. Many of us are doing this in memory and recognition of our queer forebears. 
We existed then. We exist now. We, in turn, become the histories we have worked to see recognised. And it is with the work of historians like Dr Lister that we can take comfort in the likelihood that our customs, struggles and identities will become indelible marks in time. There is something truly queer about British culture, and I cannot wait to explore this with you all in our episodes to come. This episode of the Slash Queer podcast was edited by Sam Clay and scripted and produced by me, Georgie Williams. A very special thanks to our funniest interviewee so far, Dr. Kate Lister from the Whores of Your Project and Leeds Trinity University for her contributions to this episode. As of this episode, it has been a whole year since the Slash Queer podcast officially launched. As a humble academic who just wanted to share these stories with whoever would listen, I could never have imagined how big this project would get, and I'm over the moon to have experienced the love, support, and encouragement so many of you have offered over the last 12 months. As an angry gay activist, I'm also pretty chuffed. I'd also like to take a moment to especially thank our Patreon subscribers who have supported this project over the past year. If you're not a Patreon and would like to support reparative queer activism through the medium of accessible educational resources, you can visit the Slash Queer Patreon at patreon.com forward slash slash queer. That's S-L-A-S-H queer. The link is also available on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. Additionally, we are still selling our first set of Slash Queer merch, with the Slash Queer logo available in various Pride Flag colours across t-shirts, mugs, face masks, and more. You can check us out at slashqueer.threadless.com. And once again, if you fancy throwing us a few pennies as a one-off donation, you can donate to the Slash Queer Research Project at coffee.com forward slash slash queer. That's ko ficom forward slash slash queer. Your likes, subscriptions, and shares also make a world of difference. For those who have been with us for a year, thank you. For those who have just joined us, we're so excited to have you on board for all the episodes yet to come. This episode was recorded on location in London, the United Kingdom. Music in this episode was composed by Kevin MacLeod. If you enjoyed this episode or have any feedback, please get in touch on Instagram or Twitter at at queer or email us at slashqueer at outlook.com. As always, in the meantime, stay kind, stay radical, and stay queer. <laughs>